This is Your Darkest Hour, the podcast that gives horror films a thorough autopsy. My name is John Evans, and I am joined by my old friends Vikram Wheat and Michael T. Kuchak. You've known us in the past if you are a long-time listener and first-time caller. Uh, as the it's always Friday the 13th guys, and then the franchise guys, and now we're the Darkest Hour guys. Because we just love horror that much. How you doing, Mike? I'm good. How are you, John? Outstanding. We are going to talk about a almost a lost classic, as we'll get into with Vic. Um, and Vic, how are you? <laughs> I am great, John. Holy shit, do I wish we could take calls. I mean, that, w- that would be awesome. <laughs> well, maybe we'll, we'll do that down the road uh, a piece. But tonight we are talking about Tombs of the Blind Dead. Or as AIP released it, Blind Dead, in a bastardized American version, which I had the sorrow to learn last night that that's the version that Vic watched. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh, Were you watching the one on Shudder? Is that what it is? Yes. It's the one on Amazon. Now, wait, John, I just want to say, because that's, you you really put the ball in my court there. I watched the version that you told me in the email to watch, and then told me last night you were like, oh yeah, wait, this one seems all wrong, get the DVD if you can. (laughs) How am I going to get a DVD at 10 o'clock at night on a fucking Wednesday? (laughs) My my sorrow, my chagrin, my shame, my guilt, all of that is uh, intense right now, Vic. Considering well, John, I, I only show up to bring shame and chagrin to you, so uh, <laughs> done. get on with the show. But anyway, like uh, we normally have some kind of, uh, on this show, discussion of your the first time you saw the movie that we're uh, talking about. Uh, for Vic, I imagine that's going to be a short story, but uh, anything jump out <laughs> <laughs> for you, Mike, as you recall the first time you saw Tombs of the Blind Dead? What were the circumstances? Uh, you know, as much as I d- dearly fucking love this movie, I can't 100% recall exactly the first time that I ever saw it. I have a feeling it was probably with uh, my buddy B-Boy, because we used to hang around in his basement and smoke a lot of weed and uh, watch horror movies by the stack. It feels like Tombs of the Blind Dead was, this was kind of in that era. Yeah, me too. I, I can't put my finger on it. Uh, right now, I mean, I I remember being really into the film immediately and struck by it. But you know, this isn't a, a film that came with a lot of fanfare or anticipation. Like it wasn't something that friends told me, "Oh, you've got to see Tombs of the Blind Dead." I think uh, I'm not sure if uh, massive bong hits were involved, but I did stumble into it at some point, uh, randomly and casually, and. Uh, Loved it, but and it was the real version, fortunately, or I may, may never have gone back to it. Uh, Vic, uh, was this the first time you saw it? This was the first time that I had seen this film or even heard of it. Uh, I mean, this very clearly sort of belongs to the the style of horror films that was coming out of Europe and in particular uh, Italy and Spain, I guess, in the 70s. And I feel like I've done my academic homework on that you know i mean i've seen suspiria and zombie and deep red and uh, john i think you and i actually watched uh, manhattan baby together very early in our friendship not only that the phone call that i was introduced to mike kuchak in was midway through that film i believe 
we were hanging out at my place watching that film. And uh, I was like, oh, uh, I have this call scheduled with this dude who's moving out to L.A. And then I talked to him for a while about the movie and then we finished the movie or something like that. It was, it yeah, was definitely the yeah, same Yeah, I, I distinctly remember that phone call. <laughs> How very strange. So this, yeah. all, this, this, this is what brings us all together. But what I was going to say about that is that um, as a horror fan, I found myself not terribly impressed with that or I was I was not hit on an emotional level by that category or genre of horror film now again if you're if you're a, a, a true horror fan of an aficionado something of an academic as I think the the three of us certainly are you have to be familiar with this period you have to know about Mario Bava and, and Lucio Fulci and, and Dario Argento and so those things have to uh uh, you do have to have a connection with those. But so I'm really interested to, I know you guys are, are much bigger fans of that world and that era. So I'm really curious to talk with you guys about this, sort of tease out what it is that works so well for you guys, because there actually was a lot of stuff that I liked in this. I will also say I was um, quite stunned to discover uh, in doing a little bit of homework on the director, whose name I'm about to butcher, uh, uh, Armando Di Osorio. Mm -hmm. No, I'm not going to improve on your pronunciation. uh, (laughs) The last film he directed was called (laughs) The Sea Serpent. And that film I actually had seen. And I have this very weird, distinct memory. I mean, if you'd asked me, Two weeks ago, before I ever we ever had this conversation or heard of this movie or anything, I would have recalled this memory of having that movie on VHS and kind of watching it in the living room and my mother being in the kitchen and me wanting somebody to come watch it with me. And I, so much so that this is so distinct. I went in and asked her, you know, hey, come to come watch this movie with me. And I'm pretty sure she sort of said, no, I don't want to pay. I don't want to paint the wrong picture. She was very good about that stuff. But I watched the trailer after I put these memories together with this director and it just looks awful. So I don't blame my mother anymore. (laughs) Well, I I have to note, I had never seen that film or I didn't really even know about it, but on IMDb, it's ranking is 3.4, which is just about as bad as I've ever seen. (laughs) Interestingly though, the sea serpent features the last performance of Ray Milland. Um, he passed really? away after that. Yeah, yeah. And Timothy Bottoms is the star of it, uh, 1984 film. And it, it does look dreadful. And I have to say that I am no expert on the filmography of Amando de Osorio. And looking at his credits page, it is pretty much this uh, trilogy of Blind Dead films that made his Quadrilogy. name. Quadrilogy. Quadrilogy. That's yeah. right. That's right. I haven't seen the Seagulls one. And, and to be honest, until tonight, I didn't even know about it. And I looked at, at one site that like ranked these films and I immediately, you know, look at it out of the corner of my eye to use a, uh, a phrase. <laughs> <laughs> but because um, they said that their favorite film of the quadrilogy was the fourth one. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, the second one, followed by the first one, and said that the worst film was uh, Seagulls. And then I saw one that said Seagulls is actually, you know, really underrated. So opinions really vary about that film. Mm. And so I was intrigued, and I I certainly wouldn't want to see the compromised version that you saw, Mike. 
I've seen the other ones, but I haven't seen Seagulls. So uh, yeah, yeah, uh, Seagulls puts the pro in compromised. Believe me, uh, <laughs> I, I suffered through it only because of my deep nerdery. They exist in kind of a substrata of horror geekdom that's below the Italian stuff. I mean, we've reached yeah. a, a point in which uh, you know the the Italian movies used to be these very grungy back of the video store, you know, only whispered about um, at horror convention kind of things like 20, 25 years ago. And now all those horror nerds have grown up and we're getting to a place where even, you know, Suspiria, uh, you know, the remake of which has been kind of bouncing around development for a while. We're, we're kind of almost getting to a place where the mainstream has actually kind of heard of at least Argento and Suspiria. You know, Fulci and those guys are below Bava as amazingly talented as that guy is i think because his filmography is a little bit earlier will be below that deosorio and the blind i just want to interject really quickly that the american cinematheque has always had a major boner for baba oh yeah as well they should and uh i've in fact seen several baba films that i had never seen before when i first moved out here and i was going to egyptian all the time i I think i saw restoration of black sunday there one time but anyways yeah yeah i I mean he has a couple movies that are are pretty i wouldn't call it mainstream but they're you know yeah black sunday you know things like that that are hey blood yeah yeah I'm, i'm talking about like general levels of horror film cognizance it's like i mean if you're like a horror nerd I mean, you kind of roll your eyes at Argento and Suspiria as like kind of an of course. You know, it's like, you know, talking to a metalhead and going, hey, have you ever heard this band called Slayer? You know, <laughs> whereas like Tombs of the Blind Dead and Deosorio's films are like in that kind of substrata around like Jeff Franco, where you, you really have to dig a little bit farther down. You have to forgive even more uh, than a lot of the Italian films. Yes. As obscure as they are and as obscure as the director is, I would say that the iconography, the Templars themselves, those hooded skeletal figures with, you know, this very distinctive look, like the the hoods are very unique, they're almost simian faces are extremely striking, you know, their eyes are, the eye sockets are always like in deep, deep shadow. I mean, I think a lot of people would recognize that image, the striking visual of it i think would be familiar to a lot of horror fans well recognizable because i've heard and i don't know if this is true or not but i've heard and seen on multiple occasions the rumor that peter jackson took these guys as inspiration for the nazgul Mm -hmm. that is spot fucking on yep and in fact uh if you were to cast your mind back to uh the nazgul chasing after uh arwen in the first movie and giving her a hard time. I mean, just the idea of these uh, kind of tattered, cloaked, undead creatures. The, the galloping, rings, yeah. Yeah, galloping across a uh, grassy field in broad daylight and still being scary as fuck because they're in a crowd and they've got swords. And even the way that they're filmed, the slow, one of the striking things to me about that visual was the horses in particular were always filmed in slow motion. It's very reminiscent of Peter Jackson. And given his history as kind of a, a splatterfest director, I find it hard to believe he wouldn't have encountered this. I'm, I'm sure there's, a, there's a, a straight line between those two things. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he's not quite the avowed connoisseur of the past and genre that, say, Guillermo del Toro is. 
But yeah, I would I would not be surprised at all if he admitted to that. The slow motion horses, that effect is tremendously effective. If there's five takeaways from this film, one being the look of these guys, uh, the next on, on the list would be the slow motion sequences on horseback. And of course, accompanied by really strong, in my opinion, music. Those sequences have a dreamlike, nightmarish, surreal, slow-paced menace. It really sticks with me. It's absolutely one of the things that make this movie special in my eyes. I just want to throw this out there because this was the uh, the uh, Lord of the Rings stuff hadn't actually crossed my mind. The one thing that did cross my mind about the horses and the way they were filmed and everything else was the George Romero survival of the dead film from 09 oh, yeah. movie, but a, a recurring image of a zombie on a horse. Uh, and, and Romero, again, another one of those people that I have to think would probably have encountered this movie at some point. So it is notable that this is a year and a half, two years after night of the living dead was going worldwide in theaters and it's been called a reaction to night of the living dead you know or cashing in on the zombie subgenre it certainly would be one of the first notable it's before uh children shouldn't play with dead things it's before almost any film that like was clearly cashing in on the success of night of the living dead but I don't really read it. I don't see any anything that, to me, is directly analogous to Night of the Living Dead. I think that uh, Night of the Living Dead and especially Dawn of the Dead kind of you know, did a lot to launch the cycle of Italian horror, at, at least in terms of you know zombie films and whatnot. I, I think that you know, for instance, there's a lot of like weird crossover in terms of like release names and whatnot with uh Fulci zombie you oh, know there were direct this... relationships there yeah 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 exactly uh you know kind of, kind of the cross-pollination of argento and romero when it comes to dawn but yeah you're right i in tombs is before dawn it, it resides in an earlier and uh more proto era uh and i think, and I think that's why 1970 or 71 I think it's drawing uh, more from fantasy films than zombie movies. Well, yeah, one of the things that I did find is that the director was tremendously passionate about the Knights Templar and their history and the intrigue of them and the blind dead themselves. The combination of actors and puppetry in this film is pretty singular. I, I love that you can tell that the hands of the blind dead are not human hands in gloves. I mean, yeah, they're relatively obvious in terms of being puppeteered, but the fact that they're impossibly, literally slender bones, it contributes to the uncanny nature of these things. And they're, you know, so often, especially in Italian horror films, you get like the idea that you just roughly paint extras as zombies and they you know they attack people and they they run around and there's just somewhat of a ludicrous quality usually to their makeup and their their presentation but these things you know because they're half puppet half actor with so, such elaborate and yeah constricting costumes they don't seem like just dudes you know like there's something uncanny again is the word that i come to and chilling about them they're absolutely fantastic creatures this movie doesn't work without them. I mean, you said, John, that the, the director, you know, spent a lot of his attention on them and on that aspect of it. And I really do think that it pays off 
there's a lot of this movie that works and what works works because those creatures are genuinely fearsome. This movie was at the very dawn uh, of the period when gore and sex became permissible in films. Prior to this, early to mid-60s, there was much more uh, censorship or expectation of modesty or however you want to put it. And suddenly, the general release of expectations and the, the success of films that were you know, to be harsh, pornographic in some way. Uh, this this movie, I think the real version of the film, is somewhat exploitive. Uh, I think that's it, fair. It goes for it. It yeah. goes for it. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I think I actually found myself in, in talking with some people about this and the films that we were doing and stuff, mentioning that this feels like a natural outgrowth of the Hammer Horror films. Yeah. Which were, I think that, you know, again, just tying this together a little bit with some of the Italian horror films as well. I mean, I know they're not they're not exactly identical, but I think they're in the they, you know, you could put them in the same chapter, let's say it's the same ballpark. It's not the same sport. <laughs> uh, the color palettes, the brightness of the blood, the focus on sort of scantily clad women and, and you know, sexuality as a, an element of the storytelling. Hammer was classing it up by calling it Brides of Dracula. And so what we get out of this period in the 70s, when a lot of those handcuffs have been taken off, is they, they got to just drop the class in a lot of cases. Uh, and you actually do see that De Osorio wound up doing some porn later in his career. Well, I get, well, let's say X-rated. I'm not gonna. I'm not. I'm not sure that uh, what a, a 1982 film has to do to be considered pornographic. But anyways, it, those things were all happening. This is there's a a natural outgrowth of horror that you can trace. And I think it. You know, I mean, it starts with probably the Universal horror films, and those sort of graduated to the Hammer horror films. And then you see that, if you'll pardon the pun, bleed into what began coming out of Spain and Italy in the, in the 70s. Absolutely. I mean, I think that Hammer and Bava were chased, relatively speaking. Uh, and yeah. then this is like one of the first, chronologically, I believe, films to shed those handcuffs that you mentioned. And I think that it definitely, in my opinion, even though there's some things in this film that are misogynist. You know, I, I do think that it generally adds to the power of the film that it is explicit in certain ways. And, and there's even a little bit of, you know, in, in some ways, I think, open-minded. We have a lesbian protagonist in this film, you know? I think that's cool, and it's, it's mostly, I'll be honest, I think this director, uh, when I look at his other films, Osorio, he's a, he's a kinky guy more than a a real um, champion of uh, LGBT rights. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was going for... Yeah, yeah. He's not exactly, you know, fighting for uh, equality here. I mean, in the the lesbian love scene is very clunky, but I, I still think that it's a unique for its time spin on the love triangle in this film. And that's a good way to segue into the direct plot because yeah. uh, the real wait, version... Wait, wait. Fuck mm -hmm. you, the direct plot. There's a lesbian love scene? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got that, right? Like, it, like it was, you know, it was a little more subtle in the version I watched, but anyways, all right. Was that? I'm I'm actually curious. You did get that, and was that interesting to you that it was subtextual? Well, I, no. I mean, it was still clunky. 
<laughs> um, what you've said about it is, I think, spot on. Look, I mean, we're talking about, what, 1972? Am I remembering that correctly? No, yeah, 1972. The dialogue exchange that I heard was her saying, look, you're the only reason I came, you know, I'm, I'm on this trip. Like, let's, uh, you know, do you remember what happened in school? And then there's like a weird, vaguely pervy flashback to the same two actresses, clearly not school age. But, you know, in pigtails, <laughs> looking at magazines together or something. And it just they're, they're, they're looking at a wedding magazine. And yeah. uh, one of them shows a picture of a bride and groom. And uh, one points to herself and says, I'll be the groom. And the other points to herself. And she's like, I'll be the bride. And uh, playfully, uh, the quote unquote groom pulls her hair across her face to be like a mustache. And I love that the uh, Osorio underlines the idea that this is a flashback by just blowing fog directly into the camera's lens. Exactly. (laughs) What makes that scene, that wonderful scene possible, and yeah, the, the, the fog is utterly ridiculous, is that we open with, one of the more, I don't know, production value-y uh, sequences in the film, we get this uh, kind of resort. Uh, it looks very, like, I'd love to go hang out there. Beach and pool kind of a thing in Portugal. I think it's Lisbon is where we are. These two friends who have been separated for, you know, I don't know how many years. They still look pretty young to me. Wait, John, don't all the versions open with the backstory of the Templars? Oh, no, sir. No, oh, so, no. Yeah, I was, I was going to mention that. So, yes, my version opens with the backstory of the Templars. But I think let's hold that that uh, uh, scene description for when we get to it in, in John's version. Yeah, right. we, we should do that because I actually... How I met this discovery that Vic was, um, you know, being terribly wronged in this this deal was that I started watching it. And I'm like, wait a second. You know, this is wrong. This isn't right. And, yeah, the American version, let's just call it that for now, uh, it, it, it opens with, which is understandable in some ways, this um, flashbacky sequence uh, that in the real version of the film is about halfway through the movie. Uh, where we see the Templars uh, doing a, a satanic ritual that involves the drinking of human blood, and they uh, they they kill this girl, but it's extremely like ridiculously sanitized. Like they show her, the knights literally riding by her and swinging their swords at her, and there's not a drop of blood on her. It's- Shame, John. Shame on you. <laughs> Yes, I deserve it because it like it doesn't play at all. You know, it's it's it does, it does not. That is no, correct. No, it's terrible. Yeah, and I, then I, I, this, wait, wait, I was once again eating my lunch during this scene, and I was not the least bit put off. No, I would definitely ah, dig into that. A is, that is how. <clears throat> but actually, like this raises a really interesting question, Mike. Mm-hmm. Did you watch this version? I watched this version for homework today because I wanted to remind myself. It's been a couple of years since I've seen the film, so I wanted to kind of, you know, just catch myself up. I, I, I was like, oh, does the Templar things come at the beginning? I guess it does because that's what I'm watching right now. But the whole time I was watching that sequence, I'm like, wait a minute. Aren't there, like, close-ups of the blade going into her flesh and, like, tearing her dress from her and her her, her breasts fall out and all all this other wonderful stuff and uh <laughs> no we don't get that in that cut so did you not I, look we, at your text messages last night yeah <laughs> uh, no i didn't uh I, I will agree with the artistic choice of opening with that sequence right. because it, you know establishes 
who your villains are, and it's also a really great way to open this film. And there actually is quite a bit of production value to this entire movie. We have a castle, we have awesome monsters, we have horses, we have the we yes. have the resort for a quote unquote cheesy old horror movie. It's actually got like a, a ton of shit going on. You know, the mannequin factory, you know, I mean all this awesome stuff, you know? You're right. Uh, but yeah, that entire opening sequence, Vic, I, I would highly suggest you finding the the quote unquote real version of it because it's it's a doozy. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it's very uh, much more like an Italian horror film of, you know, almost a decade later. Yeah, the other thing that I liked about that choice of opening with the sequence is it ends with this extremely random cutaway to a woman just screaming. First a close-up of the hand and yeah. then a woman screaming. And we end the movie on that, cutting to that screaming woman is such a weird non sequitur. And then we bounce straight into the resort thing. It's like, what the fuck? You're immediately off kilter. Well, that, yeah. that goes for the, the real version of the film as well. That is the open. And right. she's totally unrecognizable. But the fact that that's the character that we then immediately meet and don't recognize her uh, right. is, is really cool. But yeah, yeah. The, the real version of the film begins with the hand and that, that random cut of her screaming. I love that. I, I, and I love the fact that it, uh, it pays off at the end. That, that's a really cool bookend. I, I think that, God, there's so many wonderful things about this movie. And, and it's, such a, it's such a small thing, but it still works. Yes, absolutely. So these two friends reconnect and they're separated by years, but their friendship is still there. One they randomly them... run into each other. Like, yeah, like, totally... uh, they, they both happen to be in bikinis at a resort. At One a of them is showering off the, the chlorine from the mm-hmm. pool and looks over and sees her old friend from school. Actually, with... no, wait, Mike, I'm actually going to stop you there because I found this very strange. Uh, she actually hasn't gotten into the pool yet. Uh, <laughs> First huh. thing she does is stop and shower. Oh. Well, you're supposed uh, to do that. You're supposed to do that. I've oh, heard really? That. Yes. So yeah, I, okay. yes. I, uh, but I was watching very closely going like, wait, what is she doing? But you're right. You are supposed to. You are supposed to do right. that. Uh, but... okay. So she's just being very sanitary, but she's taking a shower poolside in her bikini looks over and sees her other friend who's also a bikini because she's sunbathing and their friends from recognizes her as uh the girl with whom she had had a torrid sapphic love affair back in high school or whatever boarding school that they were at we don't get and, that reveal though until a bit later like i think it's yeah, well no, no. timed it's well yeah i mean at first uh they just kind of say hello to each other hey how are you doing that's a that's a da it's such a organic way to very swiftly sketch character exposition because it was so I, I haven't seen you in about 10 years what have you been up to are you married yet no i've just got a business i've got this uh, mannequin factory next to the cemetery yeah <laughs> yeah that's worth noting that's worth yeah. noting that which, like, like which made me laugh out loud yeah next to the morgue next to the morgue yeah oh yeah yeah, yeah. like yeah. in some ways this film this the script is very threadbare and even though this is clunky like they literally try to motivate the fact that later in a film in the film a corpse will get up in the morgue and not have too far to go to get to the mannequin factory right yeah but i I thought that it really worked as a very organic way to kind of get some, you know, broad strokes of exposition out there. Even though, yeah, we can very much say that's threadbare in a certain way. I I also found that this movie is consistently blessed with very strong, vibrant, clear storytelling strokes that are always character driven. You know, we get who these people are. We get why they do stuff. We get where they're going. 
we get what's going on with them. You know, we get their headspace, and uh, you know, with just a couple of lines of dialogue or a look or an action. And never once did I not believe the characters. I and it gets a little touchy in the library. It gets a little broad at the gypsy camp, but uh, I mean, overall, I really enjoyed the characters and the storytelling. Yeah, even if the uh, pirates are broad, which they are, the film is really interested in investing them with strong and clear motivations. And in a way, I would say that even though those characters aren't as successful, this movie stands out from superficially similar Italian films in that dedication to character and motivation and setting up what's going to happen and having a logic to the film, which is completely counter to the yeah. even though I, I i said earlier there's dreamlike stuff in this film which is what you know you would say over and over about looking at right. an italian horror film this film is um much 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 more rigorous in not only justifying on some level of believability you know sometimes to a ridiculous degree how they bend over backwards to justify things but like as you said from a character standpoint this movie cares about its characters and yeah. I like that. And I think that's part of why I really am somewhat moved by this film. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. and I, I think that the ending, and I, I guess neither of you have seen the real ending recently. Um, Not recently, no. It's, it's, it's tremendously disturbing to me. On that topic, I've noticed, a, and Vic, I'm sure you've run into this in the course of your writing stuff, but I've consistently found that when, when you go into a, a development space uh you'll very often get notes from say executives or producers that are along the lines of you know we need more character we need more character we need more character which is all well and good and we definitely do want more character but often what they're asking for are huge ponderous expositional monologues about how uh, i grew up on this street and my mom was mean to me so i ran away when i was 16 then when I was 24, I became a circus acrobat. And then when I was 25, I was a race car driver. And then at 30, I moved to Spain. And then I then I fell in hard times and that, to that, to that. You know, just these gigantic piles of exposition that these characters are, are expected to dump on each other. And due to the fact that, you know, the writer sat down and, like, wrote out, like, this treatment-length character sketch and shoved it into their mouths, that's what counts as character. And I always push back against that. I think that two lines... And um, really identifiable human look says way more than two pages of dry exposition that, that no real people would actually ever say to each other. Mike, the problem with that is that that look is execution dependent, and that makes executives nervous. Oh, that's absolutely uh, true. It's like, well, I, I mean, how, how, how can you just write they look at each other? How do I know that that's good? You know? I, don't, I don't expect that Taylor Lautner is going to be able to communicate that much. When we catch him. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know he's a fan of the podcast, Taylor. We love you. Sorry. Oh, man. Um, Taylor, um, I'm, I'm really sorry about that. Yeah. I'm going to push back against you guys a little bit on this. I actually, in retrospect, really like the opening scene because there is attention to it and an awkwardness in that get together that makes more sense sort of once you understand a little bit more about the relationship between the characters. But I found that with the uh, pirates, let's say, and, and even with some of the other, this sort of initial love triangle that gets us into the first act and then everything that happens with, the, uh, I believe, Pedro and the that sort of side of things, those things felt muddled to me. 
again, maybe who knows what was cut out of, uh, you know, what I, what was lost in my cut of the film. And maybe that is what uh, had to do this. But I really did feel like there was a, oh, just a hodgepodge of emotional crossings. And I'm mad at you and you're mad at me and I love him and I love you and, and who's kissing who. And those things to me seemed very secondary to what was going on with the plot. I found myself longing for a more simple emotional backdrop to the story. Yeah, I actually really enjoyed the psychosexual aspects. I mean, I think that's really interesting that Mike watched the same version that Vic did and still it it totally worked for him because I'm watch I'm there someone God bless them went to the trouble of mapping out with tremendous precision exactly what is missing from the American version. And a a lot of it is dialogue in this section. You know, a lot of it are the interactions between these characters. It's a very strange love triangle. It's something that I've never encountered before. The idea here is that we meet this character who comes out of the pool next. We should identify the characters. Yeah. Vivian's the brunette who's taking a shower, right? Uh, Virginia. Betty's the one who's taking the shower, and Virginia is who is the friend that she meets. So the characters are Virginia, which is, by the way, I think a, a carefully chosen name, as we'll see later. Yeah, uh, dude, uh, according to IMDb, I'm looking at her name is Virginia White. Yeah. <laughs> that could not be more <laughs> blunt. <laughs> oh, that's funny. And then we have Roger, who is the guy that comes out of the pool next, and... Like every male in this film, uh, well, almost every male, like he's dripping with machismo. And we find that he's a new acquaintance of Virginia. They're friends, maybe dating. It's very early in their relationship. What we come to find out is that Roger is way more interested in Betsy or Bet than he Betty than he is in Virginia. So he really pushes to get her added to their little date where they're going to take this train to a hotel in the middle of nowhere because he already has identified that she's the one that he's interested in. Poor Virginia yeah. staying there like uh okay, like she's trying to like I dig the uncomfortability of that beat yeah. because I'm, on the one hand, she doesn't want to be the stick in the mud. She doesn't want to be the square and be like, no. And uh, and at the same time, she actually does kind of want to reconnect with her old friend. But at the same time, it's like his interest is so blunt. It's like, hey, let's bring your friend along. That would be awesome, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, he's, he's so very, obvious. Yeah, he, he's very much this uh, alpha male Lothario dude that um, that the crazy pirate woman later on – Keeps calling him pretty boy. Yeah, and he (laughs) uh, makes that abundantly clear, and he has no obligation to Virginia. But what makes it really interesting is that poor Virginia, I don't think she's an avowed, like a fully self-accepting lesbian the way that we find out Bet is. Like, I think maybe she's more bisexual or... But at the same time... I, I, I think she experimented in college. That's possible, but I I couldn't, I would say this, Mike, that one of the more interesting things about this is that when she, seeing this chemistry, or at least if it's a one-way chemistry, she decides to jump off the train and let these two go off to their resort together, and she doesn't want anything to do with it, I would posit that she's more wounded by bet in that scenario apparently choosing roger or you know being open to it or whatever than she is from losing roger 
one of the first things that comes out of Virginia's mouth when she sees that after years and years is, are you married? Yeah. That's like, no, no, is, uh, no, 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 I've got a career, I've got business, no time for love. Uh, a little bit later on, we flash back, and it's Virginia who's got that magazine where it's the bride and the groom. A, a couple of times, both in that conversation and a little bit later on the train, she makes mention of her age. You know, don't, don't, don't you know, she was like, oh, how many years ago? Oh, no, 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 don't say it. I don't want to give away my age. Uh, I get the read that she feels like she's getting older and she and she isn't married and she needs to land a dude like right now. Are you talking and about Bet or Virginia? Virginia. Bet is completely her own self-contained unit. She's self-actualized, whereas Virginia, it feels like that she uh, will only feel accomplished if she can land a husband and for whatever reason it hasn't worked out and she's starting to feel like she's getting older and she's probably on this trip with this dude thinking that, oh, maybe this will be the guy. And so when Bette comes into the picture, she's so deeply wounded by the entire thing that she just kind of pieces out. And she uh, also, by the way, like she has a mentor-student kind of relationship with Bet. Like Bet tells her in the real version of the film, like, don't forget what I taught you and things like that. And she says something like, you were, you're, you're the same as you were. Like, I actually have the dialogue here. She has a somewhat condescending relationship with Virginia. She's like, calm down. It doesn't matter. It was childish because you're that same little girl, the same girl who'd come to my room trembling, who needed my trust in answers to so many questions. Yeah. So I, I mean, obviously like Bet is far more, you know, aware of herself and what she wants out of life. Whereas Virginia is, uh, she looks to others for completion. And I, I think that's why she's like so hard up to get married. But and, I love you know, it. It's a thing. ballsy decision. Yeah. Like she yeah. bails from this train and she never like regrets it. It doesn't, she seems perfectly comfortable with camping in this abandoned fucking city. Back in the day when I used to watch this, I used to think that her jumping off that train was this amazingly selfish and childish thing to do. I was like, oh my God, what a drama queen. Are you nuts? And uh, her getting killed felt like just one comeuppance in a movie that's full of them. But when I was watching it today, I actually felt way more sympathetic. Uh, Roger immediately and blatantly starts uh, flirting with Bet, and Bet responds to it. Like she doesn't shove him off. She giggles and laughs and plays along. And when Virginia steps to the rear of the train, Bet kind of goes back to give her a little talk. And like you said, it's it's a little condescending. And, you know, you could see Virginia kind of look down the barrel of the rest of this weekend thinking, man, I'm going to be watching these two canoodle and I'm going to be on the sidelines. And she's like, you know what? Fuck that bullshit. Exactly. <laughs> like on the surface. Jumps off the train. On the it's surface, like, this is such a dumb horror movie, unmotivated character act. But I really believe I might have done the same thing. I really yeah, might have. And, Especially yeah, when and, I was and, 22 I, or 23. Yeah, and like you pointed out, it's like I really found myself digging the fact that she was like, oh, shit, cool. A giant creepy castle. I guess I'll sleep there. She, you know, she's got a, a sleeping bag. Yeah, she's got her little transistor radio. She puts on some tunes. She's hanging out. You know, I mean, she's making the best of it. And it's like, I, you know, tomorrow she could jump on another train. She could walk back to town. But she's like... Yeah, I'm not going to spend all weekend watching these two canoodle. Fuck that yeah. bullshit. I'm out. You I know? got the and vibe I, that I, she's I, not a superstitious person, you know? Yeah, like, I, I feel like she, yeah, she was like a little weaker at, at the top of it. But when she jumps off that train, 
you know, that's an action that I used to look very much down upon. And this time around, I was just like, yeah, okay, I totally get that, man. Go for it. Who is Betty interested in, right? Is she into Virginia? Because that's certainly what she says to her in the back of the train is the only reason I came here was to be with you. But then when Roger flirts with her, she's so utterly uh, responsive to it and directly in front of her. I mean, the whole thing, that whole scene inside the train reeks of two awful people humiliating this very introverted girl to the degree that she that she jumps off of the train to get away from them. Now, Mike, I agree with your interpretation that I sort of was like, fucking A, good for you. Like, you know, she goes in, she finds a spot, she, she locks it up, she rolls out her sleeping bag. I was like, really? You're going to sleep here? But at least, you know, prior to her death, I feel like evolves a will, a direction of, you know, a a spine that gives her character uh, something meaningful. Yeah, she finds finds a degree of agency. Yeah, but what we're left with are the two assholes that drove her to jump off the train in the first place. That's why I I love European cinema, because it's not a pure, tannically cut-and-dried morality. It's like sometimes the good die young in these films. I would also posit that Bet might be trying to, like, she wants Virginia back, and she actually thinks she will be more desirable if Roger is attracted to her. I I also think that uh, Roger is so completely meaningless that Bet flirts with him as because it's like a a funny game. She is a little bit self-centered in the sense that she it doesn't register to her how virginia might react to that beat yeah and that's why you know virginia goes stomping off and that's like oh geez oops sorry i i forgot that you have feelings too well i want to read a bit of dialogue that was missing from the version that you guys saw and i think this is yeah uh, after virginia left bet and roger like literally she's kind of sitting on his lap and (laughs) bet says i think she's upset Roger says, I don't see why. It's only natural. I think we've been a bit inconsiderate. I told you, there's nothing between us, and I really like you. It had to happen sooner or later. Not with me. She's my best friend. She's my friend, too. But what can you do? Like, to me, like, I totally buy that dynamic. It's, uh, you know, not Shakespeare, but, like, I understand exactly how they came to that point. All right, I think that Virginia's next, I would say it's probably a 10-minute sequence to, to just off the top of my head. This is worthy of, of some analysis because it's so patient. And we spend a lot of time juxtaposing Virginia, you know, smoking a cigarette, lighting a fire, which is, by the way, ridiculous because she throws like three little twigs in there. And that burns for... About 10 minutes. She's got her. The movie isn't about the campfire, Jeff. No, you're right. You're absolutely (laughs) right. But, like, as anyone, I'm sure Vic knows, like, as anyone who's ever tried to start a fire, like, that's, uh, that's going to burn for about 30 seconds. But, (laughs) okay, I'll give you the walking dead. I'll give you the (laughs) templars, but that campfire. (laughs) 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 I believe. In the blind dead, but not the campfire. So she's listening to a radio. She's reading a book. She's actually, you know, quite comfortable here. She doesn't even seem to be fuming. She's having some alone time. And then we we see the the gravestones start to stir and some unholy mist. And I believe it's some 
bells of some kind ultimately start ringing to presage the assault of the blind dead and they they have horses and they gradually surround her the building that she's in and she's barred the door but that proves to be futile because there's a hole in the door and one of them simply just reaches through and pops that right off and she does kind of have a premonition or something because she she put on pajamas and (laughs) she was bedded down but just sort of sensing something she put her street clothes back on and she was you know maybe gearing up to leave uh, before the horrible Templars invade her space and they're frankly terrifying so she she panics a little bit she gets her shoe stuck in a staircase still successful in climbing to the roof and down to the other side of the building and we think that once she jumps onto one of their zombie horses we actually think that she might get away and oh dude i love that shit yes uh, you know just two very quick observations uh when, when she gets her shoe caught it's treated as if she's caught in a bear trap for, mm-hmm. for all of the hold <laughs> that it has on this character i she struggles with it for an absurdly long period of time I, you, you would think that she had been grasped by a manacle. <laughs> well, I but, like uh, the tension. <laughs> maybe they were really expensive shoes. I don't know. And she just didn't want to let him go. But uh, she finally lets the shoe go, runs up. And I love the fact that when the Templars come out of the grave, they get on these zombie horses that come, that show up out of nowhere. But when they want to get off and come get you, they just kind of park the horse as you would any other horse. And if you have uh, cause to do so, you can jump on one and ride it. And it'll let you go. I, I've seen this movie maybe nine or ten times total. And uh, but I haven't seen it in like a couple of years. And uh, th- this time around, you know, I was really like, go, go, go. <laughs> I was really rude for her, man. I, I was, was wondering, about- absolutely. But I was wondering, like, where do the horses live? Like when they're not being summoned, like, is there yeah. an underground stable? Do they have yeah. their own little burial grounds? Like yeah, there's the, a horse the, graveyard the, somewhere. Yeah. You don't see the, you don't see the horses coming out of the horse graveyard, but yeah. there's a horse graveyard. It's one, I, I mean, after singing the tunes of, of how wonderful and organic and realistic the characters are, uh, and the storytelling and that, 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 the horses are the, are the one aspect of the film. that are very much like whatever the movie needs for that scene. Because yeah. uh, you know when it wants her to ride away, then they kind of park the horses. But in later scenes, you'll notice like the Templars will be one minute they'll be bashing down a door, the next minute they're just kind of on the horses. It's like they can summon mounts like they're World of Warcraft characters. You know, it's like <laughs> I got the impression that some of them were on horses and some of them were not. Yeah. My two observations on this scene. The first, and I feel like I've told this story before on the podcast, so you know, sorry, I do a lot of drugs. Um, (laughs) I have spent exactly one night camping in the middle of fucking nowhere by myself and my car actually got a flat tire when I got there. I was, I was reserving a parking spot for a larger camping spot for a larger camping trip and my car had a flat tire when I, like when I got out. And so I set up camp, but there was no one, I mean, for miles and miles and miles and miles. And I, speaking of doing drugs, did some drugs, which was a mistake. Uh, By the way, these drugs are now legal in almost every state. That's right. Yeah, so I can say this now. Uh, yes, I smoked a little pot in in God. the middle of the uh, this uh, Los Padres National Forest God. and uh, shot and, up marijuana's. You shot up marijuana's. <laughs> yeah, shot it up, snorted it. I did everything I could with it. 
it was the most terrifying night of my life. I seriously, like if the Knights Templar had showed up on their fucking zombie horses, like that was pretty much what I was sure was going to happen. And so I actually feel it like watching her sort of build a fire and change into her PJs. And granted, she's got sort of a lock on the door or whatever. But I sort of looked at her and I was like, fucking hey, good for you, lady. Like, you really do have your shit together. I'm sorry that you seemed like such, you know, such a, a introverted kind of, you know, non-self-assured person earlier. Here I watch you doing this when I was a blubbering mess at two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> By the way, as a side note, at some point we'll tell the story of the camping trip where Vic was about 80% sure that I was dead. <laughs> 75. Not, it was 75%. To be sure. fair. To be fair. The yeah. Vegas, Vegas betting odds were at 75%. But so that was so that was one of my observations was just as a as sort of a character note, the bells and the noises and everything like it's when you're alone by yourself in a place like that. You become so attuned to the noises that I absolutely understood her suddenly being like, I better get my clothes on. I didn't understand everything she did. She couldn't sleep in her clothes. She's camping. She's got to put her PJs on. Uh, I don't know. That was a little. uh, But, you know, in the uncut version, that's an opportunity to see her butt. Like, and it's actually quite artfully shot. Like the camera is behind a fire. And we just kind of get, you know, little glimpses, but pretty clearly as she's um, disrobing and it's tasteful, but erotic. I got the distinct sense that the cut I was watching was edited to take out all the fun parts. So um, (laughs) I found a certain kinship with the experience of watching Jason walk slowly and watch people attempt to run and get stuck in things. And like that, that somehow there was the 40 years between night of the living dead and, uh, you know, all the way up until uh, 28 days later, it was somehow just scarier if things shambled along very slowly, which meant that you had to find whatever, either you had to find a preposterous reason for your character to get her shoe stuck in a stair and not want to leave the shoe behind until the, the zombies were right on top of her. Or if you were making a Friday the 13th movie, just abandon spatial reality altogether and just let the, you know, let Jason suddenly be wherever you needed him to be. But I did find myself connecting those two ideas here that there was something somehow viscerally scary about creatures that simply moved in a slow and direct sort of way. This patient, the, implacable the, pursuit. Exactly. There, I mean, there, you go back to me. You, you, this is at the heart of It Follows is that that somehow is just a scary idea that there is something walking toward you. By the way, as a side note, there is a tremendous kinship. It follows the ring, this, like, the idea of something patiently stalking people is central to a large number of horror films. I think that it's because in that situation, the creature comes to represent the inevitability of death. Ah, absolutely. But my point is simply that it puts the filmmakers in the weird position of having to concoct reasons for characters to, again, trip and fall or get their shoes stuck here and there. And you see it, I can't, I don't know if it's this scene or if it's later on, but there's a scene where there's like a, there's sort of a large pillar in the middle of a room. And in the process of running away from the zombies, she just goes in a circle around the pillar. Right. And 
well, he's, like horrified to find that the zombies are still on the other side of the pillar when she's gone 17 feet. Like it's yeah. At the very end, I was laughing when she's running from the blind dead and she trips. And when she gets up, she uh, it looks like she's just twisted an ankle in standard horror movie fashion. But then she takes this massive tumble like she log rolls down the side of this like 10 foot sandy knoll. And when she gets to the bottom of that, the guy who gets off the train to try to help her, apparently from that point forward, her legs don't work at all. <laughs> yeah, because there, there's this gigantic <laughs> where the, the blind dead get all the way from the motherfucking castle to the train in the time that it takes that dude to get her like the 10 feet from that little <laughs> sandy thing to the train i noticed I that. that yeah the the film is trying to build tension off that but it's just like jeez lady get up man. Come on. yeah she's absolutely yeah. dead weight at that point yeah like yeah. neither leg is working at all yeah. Yeah, there, there's actually a moment where where, where he's <laughs> he's got by the shoulders and apparently she's become paralyzed from the waist down <laughs> with fear. Yeah, it looks like he she's literally fighting him. Um, yeah, yeah that... who, who knew that that you could get paralyzed by fear in only certain parts of your body? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think that. Another really striking high point of this film, though, is when Virginia is riding this horse and it looks like she's getting away and you realize that they've they've caught up to her and all of this slow motion and this sort of pack of these, you know, cavalry versions of the blind dead surround her on this horse. And we see again in slow motion as they drag her from the saddle and she takes the tumble, by the way. I don't think there's a stunt double for her. Like we see her jump off the train and we see her do this. Like this girl was game. Like she, yeah. she does her own stunts and it's much to the, the impact of the credit of the, of the scene. And uh, that's the other thing that I like about these particular undead is the fact that I mean, unlike zombies where if they're slow zombies, you can just run away. If they're fast zombies, you can still just kind of, you know, get in a car or something like that. These these motherfuckers will chase you down on a horse. <laughs> yeah. Like, dude, yeah. Yeah. Well, they're... they they have additional conveyance, uh, and uh, in that sense, they're a lot more like uh, the headless horseman or something. You know, what makes them really cool is that they are unique in that they combine characteristics of vampires clearly because they, when they actually kill you, what they do is surround you, open up cuts with their swords, and then. Uh, drink the blood from your body, you know, 10 of them or, or 15 of them drink the blood from these wounds. And that's how you die. But then you come back all uh, the victim of a vampire. It is worth pointing out that this is a really effective scene. It's really good. You're right that the, the horse's additional conveyance, Mike, would have been a, a good title maybe in German for the film. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> tombs of the tombs of the blind dead in in uh, America and Spain, but additional conveyance. Um, <laughs> but I had that. Well, but because I had that moment later on in the film, I think when Bet is running away, and I sort of thought, well, shit, like it's you watch these shambling blind creatures. Once it becomes clear that they're blind and whatever else, but you can't. But then they're on horses, and fuck, how do you get away when they're on horses? Jason never got on a horse. Although, oh man, if I were ever involved in a Friday the 13th movie, you you bet your ass Jason would get on a horse. Jason on a horse, yeah. <laughs> no, he, he would ride a bear. Uh, right, how about a snowmobile? How about a helicopter? Why not? <laughs> there is an art to this scene. There is 
what felt to me like a clumsiness to the character exposition, a muddledness in the relationships that led to Virginia getting to this point. I know you guys disagree with that, but to me, I'm sort of, I'm kind of half watching it. I'm half eating my sandwich. I'm going, all right, like, let's see. Yes, it's lovely countryside and, you know, attractive women in bikinis, but like what's, and what, once those nights come out of the graves and you really start to get a sense again, the, the, on the horses in slow motion, the imagery and the 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 sound, the the soundtrack in particular is astonishing. Not just the bells, but all the sound that's going on in these scenes. It's unsettling. Like yeah, it's, the, it, you have the chanting, it, you have the echoing it, of the hooves. Yeah. I love the the soundtrack to this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh. Yeah, I mean the Gregorian chants, the exclamation point, which is pretty much unique outside of uh, Friday the Thirteenth, actually. Where you just get a guy going, yeah. as like a major sting <laughs> in this in this film. <laughs> I can't think of anything else that's so vocal in the horror genre because generally it's instrumental. Well, I, I love that field. I love how the film effectively takes a big grassy field and turns it into like a really creepy thing. Uh, it, it becomes that much more unsettling. Yeah, like the way it, that field is a... shot. Oh yeah, and I, I, I speaking of the train, the two train guys. We have the uh, the older, experienced veteran of the train, and then we have his younger, either son or protege. I wasn't actually quite up to. It's his son. Uh, son, okay, yeah, and uh, those two guys have three beats. The first time is when Virginia jumps off the train, and the younger guy is like. Tonio's like, hey, we should stop the train and get her because and the guys and his dad is like, no, 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 there's a haunted place. We never stop here for any reason whatsoever. No explanation, but we're not stopping the train no matter fucking what. Beat number two is when they're they're riding along and they see her body in the middle of that field. And I love that shot. Holy fuck. Do I love that shot? They see the same girl who they saw jump off the train and now they see her dead body in the middle of that that sunny grassy field and the old but guy she's at like, least 100 to 150 yards away like it's, right yeah yeah but and it, yeah that's actually what makes it even creepier because yeah. it lends a certain uh reality to it it grounds it uh and the old guy is like well that i kind of yeah he kind of saw it coming because he knows what the deal is with uh uh, uh what's this place called Byzantium? uh <laughs> no it's um midian i think it's called right yeah. <laughs> But that's just for my for my deep cut horror fans, right? No, but, that's uh, a that's a great uh, Clive Barker reference there. <laughs> Boca Raton, right? No, it's like, it's like Bert Santos or yeah, yeah. Bur, know, Bur, Bur, uh, Bur, nobody Santos. goes to Acapulco anymore. But I, I, I beat one as she jumps on the train. Younger guy wants to save her. Older guy is like, no fucking way. Beat two is, oh shit, now she's dead, that poor girl. Younger guy wants to stop the train and, and see if she's okay or maybe she's still alive. Older guy is no fucking way. No, and look, there's a dead, you know, we saw her get off. Now she's dead. Now you see why. No explanation, but we're, there's no fucking way that we're stopping this train. And so those two beats lead up to the third beat at the very end of the film when finally Tonio uh, rebels. And he uh, once again, he sees a girl who is in need in this exact same area. And this time he's like, damned if I'm going to ride past another corpse in a field. He rebels against his father. He stops the train and he gets them all motherfucking killed. So I, there, Not only a- that, there's a degree of plague or, you know, zombie infection quality yeah. to this film. 
because yes. it very decisively ends with the suggestion that because of these events, now this is um, it's going to attack Lisbon again. Strong, clear, simple sketches, uh, but we absolutely one hundred percent get exactly who these two guys are, what they're all about, why they choose to do the things that they do, why things happen the way that they happen, and there's a like doomed poetry to it. He and, the the Tonio dooms them and perhaps civilization as a whole out of the goodness of his heart. With these two characters, Mike, I absolutely agree. So Berzano is the name of the place. Yes, and uh, which I like. Betty and Roger are informed by the police what happened to Virginia when they no, go back. Uh, they go looking for her. First. Well, yeah, but they, uh, they're intercepted at the at Berzano at the ruins by Officer Marcos and Inspector. Yeah. Oliveira, and I do have to say, and I'm sure Mike um, picked up on this. Oh, I love, rose. yes, yes, I love, oh, I love the carnation that this guy yeah. has in his lapel. Gotcha. Uh, if there's any doubt whatsoever <laughs> that this is a movie that takes place in Europe, the police detective has a a, a red carnation rose in, his, in the lapel of his suit. <laughs> <laughs> he always has a great movie. suit. Yeah, yeah. But and, uh, and uh, I, I, uh, there's an amusing scene that takes place before that because uh, they're just kind of hanging around, I guess, resort number two. And uh, they're like, hey, and they're, they're kind of vaguely discussing Vivian. They go to ask a servant, a serving girl, you know, about it. And she's totally, she's like, I'll lose my job if I even talk about it. You know, the manager kind of overhears you. He's like, did she talk about Brazil? And they're just like, no, it's fine. It's cool. Why? What's going on? He's like, just don't go there. It's it's terrible. And then, like, in a super, super obvious way, Roger's like, where could a guy run a horse around here? And, 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 and so he, he goes from, hey, I want to go present him. And the manager's like, no, don't go there. It's totally haunted. And he goes, uh, okay, I won't go there. But where could I rent a horse? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, well, in that case, you just want to rent a horse. Huh? Well, right over here. It'll be totally. And, and uh, Bet's like, uh, yeah, I want to go, too. I want to rent a horse, too. So I, I also love the fact that you can just uh, rent horses around here. I don't know. I, I dig the fact that they go on horseback. Well, they're in the, the middle of the... nowhere. Like, uh, yeah. there's a lot uh, of mention of the fact that there are large stretches without even a village close to the, the ruins. Like, the closest place is a village six miles away where no no one goes except these sort of pirate-y people that we meet later. But right. I think yeah, that... The characters are, are consistently surprised... Uh, in Act 1, they keep going, well, we'll just walk to the village. There is no village. Well, I guess we'll just go to the next village then. There's no village. No villages around Verzanum. Don't you? <laughs> yeah, this is a, a portion of Portugal that is extremely remote. So the next big thing is the morgue attendant. <laughs> oh, Torgo? I love yeah. that dude. I love that guy. <laughs> this is the Spanish equivalent of a red shirt. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, no. I, I, he's, uh, I think, very clearly intended to be comic relief because he's yeah. so broad that I mean, it's not an accident. I, I actually dig the fact that Roger and uh, go to the ruins. Their horses get scared off, and while they're like, "God, what scared off the horses? We have no idea." And uh, suddenly, these two cops come out, and uh, they know everything about them. They're just like. You, uh, this is your name, and this is where you're staying, and you're looking for your friend Vidyman, and uh, everyone's like, and Roger's like, how do you know all this stuff? And uh, the guy with the corsage is like, uh, we are a somewhat backward place, but we do, in fact, own a telephone. <laughs> I love that. 
<laughs> I love those cops. I, I would love. I, I wish that those guys had come back in, in part two, or we had gotten more of them. But yeah, they, after the cops get them and uh, they take them back to civilization, and they're brought to the morgue to uh, to identify poor Vivian's body. Virginia. And, yeah, Virginia, and um, <laughs> beer number nine, guys. Beer number nine, <laughs> and in a wonderful scene, they're they're brought to a body under a sheet, and this torgo ass <laughs> motherfucker. Who is like the mortuary assistant? He gets this big smile on his face and he picks up the sheet. He goes, Waha! And it's like some old lady with like a yeah. shotgun blast on the side of her face. <laughs> and they all go, Wah! And then they go, Wait a minute, that's not her. <laughs> he looks disappointed, but then he goes, Aha, I get to do this again. And they go to the next gurney over and he does the same thing. He's like, Oh, and they go, Oh, eek, it's Vivian. Like just the choice, whoever, like, you cast another body, the old lady, and they're all like, we need to put this in the movie. Like, just to go the extra mile to have that happen, that's not a cat jumping out of a closet. Like, there's, it's not a cliche. Like, oh, of course there should be another body that they reveal first before the actual one. It's right. it's so ridiculous that it's sublime. Is the next scene Vivian getting up or, or Virginia getting up or is the next scene Professor Exposition? Well, the next scene is Betty going back to work in the mannequin shop. What a fucking classic-ass scene. Well, no, 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 not quite yet. Uh, uh, We introduce Nina, the character that will be in the classic scene, who is her assistant, and she tells her, you know, what she's gone through, and she's not concentrating on her work, and we reveal that, that Nina actually is somewhat of a local and is pretty familiar with Berzano, um, which doesn't pay off in any way other than just sort of establishing that a lot of people know that this is a bad thing. Like, she grew up near there. There's a neon sign on the roof outside mm-hmm. the shop, and it creates a red flashing light. That yeah. It comes on, and it goes off in a rhythmic pat- uh, pattern. And uh, so someone even goes, does, does that annoy you? And they're just like, nah, you can just get used to it. It's which, fine. Which makes sense. But yeah, um, yeah, Mike, you uh, you specifically borrowed this for a, a certain short film. I, I uh, directed a short horror project called Fade to Black, and there is a sequence in which uh, our protagonist, played by Emily Rua, uh, is in a parking garage and she's pursuing the sound of a crying baby, uh, and she finds herself in an area where there is a red light that's coming on and going off. And uh, that red light in my short was completely stole. I'm sorry, homaged to uh, (laughs) this film. Uh, And who operated the red light? A brilliant uh, lighting technician who we brought in from Spain, (laughs) whose name escapes me. Uh, But he came in, dazzled us with his technical prowess, and then he uh, he, he left, uh, ironically enough, to go to a baby shower <laughs> for a woman who would go on to play a woman in a movie uh, that I produced about a baby shower that goes wrong called Killer Party. <laughs> so what an incestuous area. world that we live in. Yes. Uh, oh, oh no! I, I now now I come to think of it, that um, ironically enough, that that mysterious lighting technician was in fact Portuguese. He was. And that man was me. (laughs) (laughs) So let's move on. (laughs) So 
this is kind of interesting and awesome that Betty and Roger go to the library and they meet with a professor who's an authority on the Middle Ages. When told that like the Templars um, may have murdered their friend, the professor says, they're back? That's great! Yeah, <laughs> and, and she goes, That's goes are you? what we got in the dubbed version. Betty is like, are you mad? This guy's insane! Well, but there's something too, like, he literally, he looks like the professor in this movie. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's, he has the, the, the beard, the goatee that's grown out just a little bit. Like it's everything about it looks stereotypically professorial. Like it's, it's almost silly. Yeah. Yeah, Like the dye job of the gray in his beard looks really fake. Even at this early stage, we have a character who's, you know, basically professor exposition, uh, who becomes such a cliched trope of especially studio horror for great character actors like Vincent D'Onofrio and right. uh, absolutely yes. true Nicholas Simmons for years to come. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Oliver Platt can sit in front of a computer for a day of production, pull down a paycheck, you know, so he can go, Oh, the Bagul is actually a, uh, Oh no, that was D'Onofrio. That was but, D'Onofrio. But you, that yeah. Was yeah, the, exactly. Typically I, what I was sitting but for. it's like whatever fucking movie it is, it's like act one. The characters are, Get get the thing, and then they get on it. Act two, it gets worse. If you at looked the end, at at the last twenty five years of studio yes. horror, like top ten most eye rolling tropes, I think that's yeah. easily on the list. In the eighties, it used to be the telling of the legend. It used to be the campfire tor- story in Friday the Thirteenth, or even the fog. And along the way, it, it became Professor Exposition. And sometimes that's a priest. Sometimes it's an actual professor. Sometimes it's a uh, a rabbi like in um, the one with the box, the Debic. Uh, oh, yeah. Even uh, in The Ring, uh, Brian Cox is a yeah. pretty – like he fits this this bill. He does. Uh, he, he fulfills the, the function of Professor Exposition, but he's not specifically that because he's actually tied to the story. Exactly. That, uh, that, that's, that's I think the best way to do it. The worst way to do it is to be like – uh, there's a ghost in my house. Who do I call? Flip, flip, flip. Uh, oh, there's a ghost guy. Hello, ghost guy. What's going on? Oh, well. By the way, there's even one in... There's uh, Alan King in The Mothman Prophecies has always been the most egregious example to me. That's right. a good uh, one. But also Paranormal Activity has this character. Priest. Sure. Oh, yeah. It's, it's everywhere. I mean, it's it's almost ubiquitous. It's something, as a writer, it's something I fight against constantly. <laughs> it, 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 you know, we need somebody to come in and explain everything. And I, what I what I try to do as a writer, Jesus Christ, you can cut this out, I swear to God. But what I try to do as a writer is to make my B story involve a character, involve that, involve that character so that they can explain everything. Right. Like, so like they, Brian they Cox in the ring. Yeah. Involved in the story. Yeah, it can be the former victim or the, you know, da-da-da-da-da. Although it it suddenly occurs to me that, uh, not to tangentialize, but the Conjuring films are, what if you made the entire movie about the adventures of Professor Exposition and his wife? Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's that's a very interesting way of looking at it. I'm pretty sure that this character pops up in, like, say, the earlier Hammer films that you're talking about. Uh, Definitely in Psycho. We, we end Psycho with an entire ponderous Professor Exposition dialogue. Uh, but, yeah, it is interesting that we have, like, not only an early version of this, 
in Spain, but also it's so broad. He's like, you might as well have a sign that says professor on his neck. Can we get can we get Mike Myers to play uh, Basil Exposition's brother, <laughs> Professor Exposition? Because I like seriously, there's got to be a horror parody with Professor Exposition. Because you're you're spot on, Mike. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, and uh, he he he's in a wheelchair. He has a team of mutants. Yes. <laughs> well, the novel aspect of this Professor Exposition is that he has a son who could not be more different from him. And yet this is our through line to meeting that character. Well, actually, no, the, the police Pops officer. Up. Yeah. The police officer. With yeah. The uh, Detective, yeah. Detective Carnation shows up. Mm-hmm. And he sort of discredits the professor. And he says, he's asking him about Pedro, his son. And he's like, well, essentially he says, all of these legends about Burzano are perpetrated by your son and his gang to scare people away from their illegal smuggling activities in the area. And that's interesting because when we meet Pedro, we find quickly that he's one of the few characters that apparently has no relationship with this myth, which is particularly sad considering who his father is. But he gives no credence to it whatsoever. You know, the funny thing about the cops theory is that it, it directly plugs into a Scooby-Doo episode. <laughs> yes. It would be as if Fred and Daphne led uh, one of the blind dead into a trap according, and got like a crate over his head and pulled off the mask. And it was Pedro. He's like, ah, I was just trying to scare you darn kids away from my smuggling operation. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what the cops want us to believe is going on, which is really funny. So the next big thing, though, in the film is that poor Virginia gets up from her morgue table and interrupts the crazy, wacky morgue attendant. Apparently, I don't know if he's torturing a frog, yes. but he's yes. toying with a frog. When Torgo has a little bit of free time on his hands, he he has a frog in a goldfish bowl. And he takes a pair of forceps and he jabs the frog with the forceps. Yeah. And uh, I absolutely love when Virginia slowly gets up, slowly walks over to him. And uh, at first she doesn't attack him. She just puts a hand on his shoulder. And we get that delicious beat in which he reacts to that dead, cold hand on his shoulder. And his brain catches up with what that means. And then he turns around. And she bites him on the neck and kills him. So presumably, uh, if we had a true sequel, we would not only get the further adventures of, uh, uh, off, you know, Detective Carnation. We would also see Torgo come back as living dead. The best thing about that scene is at the very end of it, as he's thrashing around, being murdered by the undead, he knocks over the goldfish bowl and it breaks, and the frog escapes. And Not only does it escape, it hops through a giant pool of his blood. I know. It reminded me of that old joke about how uh, the lobsters in the kitchen thought the uh, the Titanic sinking was a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, wait, was anybody else? I, I found myself distracted by her post-autopsy attire. Yeah. Like they I, did, I, agree. I thought they did. They did a really nice job. Like as she gets up off the bed, the sheet remains hanging over her, 
And as she's walking, you sort of catch like a glimpse of like she's still got, you know, what looks like ace bandages around her breasts and her bathing suit area, as therapists say. Um, <laughs> but uh, but what I realized, you know, and then as we as we catch up with her later and even a little bit in this scene, I feel like. But later on, in particular, they just sort of don't even address the fact that somehow they gave her an autopsy with an ace bandage bikini on that bother you guys like what was, I, it did bother me I, I actually thought that those were granny panties i thought that they were just being very uh chaste very catholic mm, I don't know. no i thought they looked like bandages to me yeah, yeah. okay yeah i mean it, it has a, a shroud like appearance but it's pretty unmotivated it didn't feel believable to me so especially if again because i'm i'm watching you know the pg-13 rated version of this like john I, you're saying that you're the cut you watched had no shortage of nudity why would they do that i wonder yeah yeah i don't know i mean there's no full frontals or anything like that so i mean i i don't have an explanation for it but it is somewhat ridiculous that she's wearing this gauzy bikini when she menaces Nina, the employee at the mannequin factory. Shame, is... John. Shame. I thought you know these things. I know. I've completely let you down on this one, Beck. But, for, the, yeah. for the last time. <laughs> so, um, as Mike bangs around in the background in his kitchen. I'm getting a beer. All right, good. I'm beard. So this amazing flashing red light creates, uh, you know, it, it amps up the suspense as the corpse leaves the morgue and goes to the factory in search of her erstwhile lover, Bet, who, of course, is nowhere near her, which I think is also one of the weird eccentricities of this film, is that we get a minor character who has some relationship with Berzano, but isn't connected to Virginia at all. She's being terrified and stalked by this vampire zombie version of Virginia, who's actually there to find oh, that. Dude, that shot when she's coming down the, the long aisle. Oh yes. Of the you know, the mannequins on either side and she's center frame and she's and the red light is coming on and off and just slowly stalking down that aisle. Holy fuck, it's so good. It's so good. Yeah, her I mean, arms I, outstretched. I stop you because my favorite shot, and I really was struck by this, is Nina trying to place the eyeball inside of the dummy at the beginning oh, of this. Yeah. yeah. Mannequin. Apparently in 70s Spain, they had really uh, detailed mannequins. I'm not sure if that's ridiculous or or cool. <laughs> it's it's unsettling. What it what it was when I was watching it was unsettling, which was fairly impressive. Now I, the other thing that I will say, and I, I wonder, I'm, I'm curious to get your guys' opinion on this. When she says, "Oh, I you know I own a mannequin factory," from the perspective <laughs> of a 2013 horror aficionado, you're like, "Well, fuck! Like, I why don't you just shoot yourself now?" <laughs> yeah, <what? laughs> you, you own a mannequin factory? That's almost yeah, as bad as being a sporting magnate. Yeah. Yeah. So I so they obviously they, they you know they set this up and then here is where we get this sort of payoff to it. But I wonder if in nineteen seventy two and somebody said, I own a mannequin factory, were like were people in the audience going, 
you know, I suppose those mannequins have to come from somewhere. Right, yeah. <laughs> you, know. And, uh, you know, and she, she probably also opened a uh, satellite store in New York where the guy from Maniac – uh, would, would set right. up camp. Right. By oh, the way, I, that was uh, I, I, my I, I, reference. I was going like, does she have a Kim Cattrall version of the, the doll that she does? But that's <laughs> much nice. more horrifying. Nice. Pretty sure that there's also a mannequin situation going on in Bava's uh, Hatchet for a Honeymoon, but it's been a little while since I've seen that one. So. I don't think Andrew McCarthy was in that one, but the third of these films features... Um, a sporting magnet, and that's that's where I was going with that. Is that, I, I got that reference. Yes, yeah. I thought that you would. I thought that you would. I'm not I, sure the I listeners not, will. But, but sadly, I got the Andrew McCarthy reference, which is even worse. Well, you know, that, that film is a classic. I'll maintain that to my, my grave. You know, worse is I know that it was William Ragsdale in the sequel. <laughs> okay, now you're getting weird. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, everybody. Let's just move on. <laughs> There is uh, a delightful moment when uh, Virginia stalks onto Nina and Nina's uh, reaction is to grab a telephone. And uh, I, I'm not sure how telephones work in Spain. Uh, I mean, the police have one in their office, as established by Officer Carnation. But uh, she just picks up the receiver. She's like, help! Help me! Help! <laughs> she help doesn't me! dial anything, yeah. Yeah, there, there's no dialing. There's no explanation of her situation. There's no like, hey, a crazy woman is trying to die. And uh, well, she, by the way, what makes that truly ridiculous is that yeah. we see Virginia, this vampire zombie, is about five to ten feet away from her. Yeah, she's so, really, really yeah, close. Like, she's unless the police close. are in the next room. Yeah, I don't I, know I, I that that's going to help. Are equidistant, then they're going to be useless <laughs> yeah. for uh, for her situation. But uh, it also strikes me, you know, what, what happens is Nina backs away, accidentally knocks over an oil lantern that sets a mannequin on fire that falls over, and that fire not only terrifies undead Virginia with its flames uh, enough that it kind of backs her off into a corner and then sets her on fire, and she burns to her final death. Holy shit, if these mannequins are this flammable, you would not want to keep an oil lantern in this place. <laughs> I, I, <it's, laughs> this is not one of the finest moments of the film. No. Well, uh, like, I, I, I like the image of the flaming mannequin i i, I yeah. this is one of the beats where it's going for less logic more scares we, we don't give a shit if it makes sense as long as it's awesome but the Which optical is, printing or however they execute the special effect of the fire over yeah. virginia is flat yes. out terrible it's flat it's, out terrible it's approximately what you would see in a 60s hercules movie i i, I kind of shrug and forgive it because the practical effects are so fucking well, yeah, you're, as you said, the intercut to the melting mannequin is, is yeah. disturbing. It's, it's effective. I, that was another high point of the film. We go into a bit of a lull here where Roger and Betty go out and they meet this pirate, Pedro, and his extremely both slutty and possessive girlfriend, Maria. Yeah. <laughs> she she is she is a real Spitfire man. Yeah. Although it's yeah, here's thing is like they go to uh, the location of the pirate slash smuggler camp and uh, they they pull up and uh, Roger's like, hey, I'll be back in half an hour. And the the boat driver is like, you got thirty minutes, buddy, or and I'm out of here right after that. And so uh, he goes up there 
just walks up the beach. This dude in the suit just kind of like walks up the beach to the pirate camp. And I, I dig a beat where he runs into two women. One is younger, one is older. And the younger woman, uh, he's like, hey, I'm looking for Pedro. And the younger woman is like, he's not here. And the older woman has a little more uh, judgment, I guess. And she's like, uh, I'll go get him. You know, and uh, in the meanwhile, he gets menaced by these smugglers with like a uh, gaff hooks, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, he's got improvised weapons. And uh, well, the m- moment that we first meet Pedro, he's putting his shirt on and he's telling his girlfriends not to be so jealous. He's like, ah, oh, your jealousy is amusing. That's it. That's that. Or something like that. Splashes water in his face. It's funny that in act one, Roger was like the Lothario-ish, like super, you know, stenchy alpha male dude who would just kind of go after any woman they saw, you know, uh, feelings be damned. And he actually gets completely bitched out by Pedro. Pedro is like him on a completely different level. And it's instantly apparent and, and remains so for the entire rest of the movie. He actually becomes like a distant beta male to Pedro. It, it is almost semi-amusing to watch this guy who was like, you know, super macho European guy, uh, you know, kind of kind of meet the bigger, meaner dog. Well, but even Pedro is sort of like murder. Whoa, 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 whoa. We don't yeah. do murder. Like, we're smugglers. That's not our bag, baby. Like, yeah, you know, uh, I, but I, he's, he's very, very cool. Well, that's what I mean. I just, well, yeah, I just yeah. mean like some somewhere Sonny Corleone is sort of going. Yeah, no, no, no I got the murder thing. Like you, 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 <laughs> yeah, you'd yeah. be afraid of. Well, I, you know, like, I, I, I get it. He's like, uh, you know, they've got their little operation, and he's actually like taken aback by the ideas of being accused of murder. I couldn't shake the fact that this dude was Professor Exposition's son. And you yeah. could all you, you could very much instantly conjure those conversations of this kid growing up at that house and his dad is like, Yeah, I want you to hang out in these dusty libraries for the rest of, of your life and little Pedro's like, Fuck that bullshit. <laughs> I'm gonna go be a pirate. Well in the <laughs> um the real cut of the film, the sequence begins earlier. Pedro and Maria are banging mm. and the not very attractive girl climbs the ladder and is yelling to the to pedro and maria's like let that idiot yell and pedro's like something (laughs) something's up and the girl says whatever and pedro says it could be the police and then he gets out of bed and and she says you pulled that trick on me on twice and and he's (laughs) (laughs) yeah she is a really she's a very broad character but man is she she's so consistent Mm -hmm. that she's uh uh both infuriating and hilarious and kind of sexy and by by at the same time also like god she's a nightmare but at the same time she's a lot of fun and every scene that she that she's in although here's something very subtle that i noticed john when Pedro first comes down to talk to the guy, to talk to Roger. He says something in Portuguese. The subtitles were like in Portuguese, hello, how are you doing? And Roger says something along the lines of, you know, I'm Spanish. So presumably everything, Mm. the story that's been taking place up until now is in Spain, the the Spain side of the border. And now we've gone into the wilds of Portugal. And given the characters of Pedro and his feral hellcat woman, we can only presume that the film is telling us that in this world, the Portuguese are like these barbaric, feral, Mad Max level, uncivilized creatures. 
I read an interview, I guess her, her name is pronounced Lone Fleming, Betty, um, who, by the way, I just have to say, she has a tremendous, sultry, sexy quality, sensuous quality to her. Like, in a lot of these films, there's something off about the actresses, and in yeah. this film, she's very charismatic. But in any event, she said that even though the movie is made in Spain or, you know, they were Spanish, it did so well in every country but Spain. And that it was okay in Spain. <laughs> you know, so it haunted Amando de Osorio that, you know, in his native land, he never achieved the degree of success that he did uh, huh. elsewhere. Just the fact that those Portuguese characters are shown to be such feral criminals. It made me look out of the corner of my eye at you, John, because your your own your own blood is polluted with with that insanity. Johnny Portuguese. Yeah, exactly, dude. <laughs> it's a different world, man. I we we might want to stop publicizing this on the yeah. podcast. I'm just saying. Yeah, they're, they're, I, I could get deported. Well, nobody's pointing fig. Nobody's deporting anybody yet. We're still getting the camps built, okay? I am of I am of good old, <laughs> you know, Eastern European stock. Like we're not gypsies. So, well, my birth certificate could come into question. Figure out what we're going to do with you, but what we wind up with is Roger making out with Maria and that getting raped by Pedro, who then offers her a cigarette. I don't know quite how to process that. Yeah, um, it's a very wow moment. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's very cavalier about it, and uh, one of the more heartbreaking elements of that horrendous scene is um, before that goes down, he even asked her about, you know, is, is he your boyfriend? And she's like, no, nah, he's just a friend. He's a guy I know. And he's like, uh, do you have a guy? And she's like, oh, no, he, he teases her. He's like, uh, oh, I guess you're not really into guys, huh? And, and she even says that. She's like, no, actually, like, basically she tells him that she got attacked when she was a kid. So, you know, she was, you know, sexually assaulted. She when tells she tells him a, she's a lesbian and adds that. Yeah. Yeah. So basically we have this poor woman who was sexually assaulted when she was a child and now she gets raped now. So it's just, it's just, you know, yeah, it, he it, has it, a guilt she, and shame when he offers her the cigarette and yeah, she's that, that, still that, hanging out with him. It's so awkward. It's so brutal to watch. What you gonna do? Go running, screaming to Roger? You know, it's like, yeah, I, because by that time he's been so emasculated by that guy. There, there's, there's a scene that's really funny where uh, Pedro's like, uh, you know, they, they finally get to the castle, the four of them, and Pedro's like, uh, "Hey, do you have a pistol?" Roger's like, "Yeah, I do." He pulls out his gun, and Pedro's like, Psh, "That's good enough for the ladies, I suppose, but you should take this bigger gun." <laughs> he hands him this larger the gun takes a smaller one, hands it off to Maria. And Roger's like, well, do you, do you have an even bigger gun? And he's like, no, I just got this little knife. That's all I need. <laughs> well, no, not, not even that. He he activates the switchblade in Roger's face. Yeah, and yeah. He's, he's like, he's, this is what I have. Yeah, yeah. He's like, that's all I need. It's yeah. this little switchblade. <laughs> it's like, dude, he fucking owns this guy. And up until this moment, Roger has been this completely unctuous character. And to see him get kind of, in, in psychosexual terms, get eaten alive in front of the women by Pedro is is pretty satisfying. Yeah, it's it's basically one alpha male being out-alphaed 
by the next. Yeah, I, that, that's kind of the thing that I liked about this movie, Vic, is uh, that the the sexual jousting uh, between both the males and females is very, very explicit. It's, it's very out in the open. There's, I mean, the subtlety comes only in the shadings of these very large beats that I, I thoroughly enjoyed, man. Do you think that Bet actually has any interest in Roger? No. No. But so that means that the the sort of dosy do the the lap sitting and the flirting and everything that she's doing in the on the train with him that's just horrible, right? Well, it's nineteen seventy one. Or taunting an ex lover by stealing her current lover. Yeah, I mean, my my read on it is it's so incredibly meaningless to her that she, she that that doesn't process that it wouldn't be equally meaningless to uh, Virginia. Like, like, it doesn't register with her that Virginia doesn't also see Roger as, like, this casual plaything. And uh, is actually a little surprised when she's like, oh, shit, she actually kind of likes this guy. He's mm. not, like, ju- just some lump to play with. You yeah, know? I, I have the distinct feeling that Bet is a true lesbian, and she more or less seduced Virginia, given her charisma and the superiority of her relationship at that time. And Virginia has not met a man that she cares about more than bet, but she's open to that and more, you know, more receptive to it, or at least more motivated. You know, again, this is a time where it was not an easy road. A Roger just seems like an awful person. Bet has to be deluded to not understand Virginia's attraction to him. I don't know. It, it just seems muddled. It just seems it, it, it doesn't seem clear to me. It seems like there has to be a sexual triangle in the first act and a sexual triangle or, or, or square, I suppose, in the, yeah. in the third act. But neither of them, I mean, the first one at least motivates Virginia to get off the train. And I sort of go, well, all right, like that's, again, it feels a little awkward, but that's fine. The last one, like I, if that scene plays out, like if, like if Pedro doesn't rape Bet, and instead they just go for a walk and smoke cigarettes and talk about their astrological signs. <laughs> you know what I mean? If if Maria and Roger don't kiss and have whatever weird interaction that they have, the scene between Roger and Maria reminds me of Bruce Willis and the cab driver in Pulp Fiction. The the scene with him and Maria is the pivoting of the power between the characters. Because before that, Bet, Bet and Roger were the powerful characters, and, and uh, Virginia was like, I, I'm out of here, I'm not going to deal with watching these people canoodle and later on you know roger and bet are in the situation where they meet the two much more feral alpha versions of themselves yes. you know and uh if pedro is way more manly man than roger you know the, the, uh, uh bet and and roger are civilized these two are pirates when pedro and Bet are like yeah let's go yeah let's 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 go for a patrol around the perimeter and see what's up the second that door closes, Maria is just like, what do you think about that, huh? You know what's going to go down, huh? Is she, hey, is she your girlfriend? Because guess what? If she was, she isn't anymore. Ha, ha, ha. 
and then she like throws herself at Roger to see what see what he's gonna do, and then she makes fun of him. She keeps calling him a pretty boy. I don't usually like the pretty boys. I like yeah. the more aggressive. So I agree, it, like I agree with that, but I these characters they're rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic before the zombies show up. You know what I mean? Like at least in the when we're going through these emotional machinations in the first act, it has some impact on the plot, but none of this means anything. I think it is only registering as meaningless, Vic, because we know that the blind dead are in the foreground and they're about to appear. But if you were to take these same sexual beats between these four characters and put them on a stage play in an off-Broadway scenario, they would still be of interest and would still register as organic human uh, activity. Of course, look, I, if you take the zombies out of this and give it to uh, Bernardo Bertolucci, like, I'm I'm intrigued. I want to know what happens. I want to know yes. who's going to get fucked in the ass with butter. As yeah, loose. I was like, about to say, there's a real Last Tango in Paris vibe here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the thing. But that's, the reality is, this is not a movie about... Maria's desire for, you know, aggressive sexual uh, ministrations from Roger. This is a movie about people getting killed by zombies. Dude, I, don't get me wrong. I, I'm the first guy to get to roll my eyes at stuff that feels like obvious time-filling filler. Uh, especially when it comes to, like, horror and thrillers where it's like, yeah, 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 okay, the characters have to hang around and talk about their fucking childhoods because we have to burn some time before the shark shows up or whatever. I felt the same way that you did probably the first two or three times that I watched this film. And now that I've watched it, I mean, this is probably my ninth or tenth time seeing it. I, I, it soaked into me enough that now I can just kind of watch it and, and actually enjoy what's going on. Like I, I, I actually not only don't mind it, but I thoroughly like everything that's going on with the characters. Well, if you want to compare this to Night of the Living Dead, I would on some level be more interested in this meaty, tawdry, sexual psychodynamics than, well, uh, the basement isn't safe. Uh, we should, we should be protecting. We don't want to get quartered in there. We should be protecting the whole house. No, the basement is our, our last line of refuge. Like that's where we can be truly safe. Like I kind of would rather watch people be doing this stuff than, than arguing about all that. Well, I, I do. I am Maria is such a fucking trip. I especially oh, yeah. what a, the, what a uh, character she I, is. Especially when, uh, and in terms of horror movies, uh, love comeuppance. Uh, and, and if we're going to talk about Dance Macabre, one, one could almost argue that you know it's a primary font for uh, moral comeuppance uh, in our cinematic language. But it's rarely as immediate or direct as when it comes to Pedro, because he rapes uh, Betty. She goes away, and immediately he's set upon by the blind dead, and they murder him in a terrible, terrible fashion. He is so punked in that. Like, he doesn't fight. He doesn't run. He is pathetic. He seems like the big bat, you know, the bigger, badder alpha dog. Absolutely. And and he's like, I don't even need a pistol. I just need this little switchblade. I'm going to wave around in your face. And then, but when push comes to shove, he gets... Like you said, punked out real fast. He's, he's Bill Paxton in True Lies. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, don't eat me, zombies! I got a little dick. It's pathetic. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. God, yeah. Uh, so the blind dead emerge right after the rape, and they encircle Pedro and kill him. And then I think what happens to Roger is really, really 
poignant and the last sort of high point. Of... Although there, there is a really cool shot in that sequence with Pedro because uh, there's a wide shot of just Pedro's center frame yeah. and he's surrounded by the blind dead as they kind of close in. And now that he's got the switchblade out, he just looks pathetic. And yeah. like you're talking about with the, the combination of uh, stunt work and puppetry, when they actually get him down on the ground and they're biting him, they're clearly like puppet heads, but they really go at him. Like those puppet heads are really wriggling around in there. And it gives it like a really uh, rabid, horrible, ghoulish quality that I loved. <laughs> yeah, these things are, are, are ghouls. And once again, I want to stress that, you know, for whatever my issues with the sexual politics that are going on prior to this, once the zombies come out, this becomes a terrifically effective film. And that's an effective scene. And we get to see, I mean, again, we get to see the impotence of Rogers that, you know, the gun that Roger uses, which is, of course, Pedro's gun on them. I mean, you know, the metaphorical aspects of that are certainly worth mentioning. And it's terrific. It's terrifically effective. It's scary. Everything you want out of it. The thing that makes it really work is that Roger, you know, whether this would have been meaningless or not, he wants to get behind a closed door. He wants to get to safety and shelter. And Betty wants to let him in. But Maria has turned on him to such a degree or like just wild animal paranoia that she will not allow that door to be opened. And so we watch, like in a pretty extended sequence, Maria fight with Betty to keep that door locked while Roger, in agonizingly suspenseful fashion, is banging on it. And the blind dead take a really long time to actually get to him. And yeah. you really keep thinking he's going to get in, right? I mean, you think somebody, you think <laughs> that door is going to open, but it doesn't. Once again, we, we arrive at the slowly kind of lumbering bad guy. And how do we contrive a way for our character to get murdered? And if we can contrive a way that involves a cat fight between two hot chicks, <laughs> it didn't strike me as something that sprang immediately out of the character so much as, hey, what if you two girls have a pillow fight and yeah. uh, then we'll just let the zombies eat Roger? But the very first beat that we get out of Maria ever is she's expressing jealousy, but it's also extra, like psychotically possessive. And she won't open up that door because she's leapt to the conclusion that Roger has done something to Pedro because otherwise why isn't Pedro also knocking on the door she really thinks that Pedro wooed you know quote unquote wooed Beth, Betty and now Roger did something to Pedro and uh, she's not going to open that door until Pedro comes and tells her that he's okay and uh, yeah just and they're struggling over the pistol that Roger brought out there with him that Pedro took away and handed to Maria so it's like dude, I dude, absolutely dude. buy it because yeah, yeah this character Maria is just you know like a, a rattlesnake you know yeah, from the very hellcat. beginning exactly yeah, she is a complete fucking hellcat yeah expect the unexpected from her yeah but even but, as uh, illogical as it is mm -hmm. i buy it yeah absolutely i mean she, she's it, it, it's illogical because it's unreasonable but she's an unreasonable character and thereby it's logical yep Yep. <laughs> so and then you know roger gets his arm chopped off and that's horrible but he manages to warn, and I, I think for me, watching the film, this is the first time I saw the the high concept, if you want to look at it in Hollywood terms, 
yeah. even explored is when he tells Betty, you'll be safe if you don't make any sound. So yeah. we don't get until the very end of the movie somebody trying to be quiet around the blind dead. The high concept setup of these creatures is that they are blind. It's in the title of the movie. <laughs> uh, but they have extremely sharp hearing to such a degree that factor isn't taken into play by Virginia because, uh, you know, she keeps making noise and they keep following her. And then what wonderfully happens is they get into that room and Maria is off to one side and she gasps. And did you guys catch us? As slow and ponderous as these guys are, when she gasps, like all their heads whip around and yeah. listen. And oh my God, it's such a great moment. And they crowd in on her and they get her and uh, it leaves it to Betty and she is alone. And she, uh, thanks to Roger's advice, she holds her breath and for, and the soundtrack, the excellence, excellence, excellent sound design because for a second i thought that sound had gone off on my computer but it just plunges us so deeply into silence for just that one second that we're exactly on the same page as the blind dead i like that after they kill her they kind of know there's someone else there but they kind of just stand around and look at each other they're a little confused but the room is so quiet that literally the pounding heartbeat Yes, Betty clues them in to her presence. And the the way that the camera moves in on the heartbeats is a marvelous visualization of that. Oh, dude, in a movie full of amazing fucking visuals, one of the best is when, with every heartbeat, the camera zooms in a little closer. Doom, 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 doom. I mean, that is fucking horror movie camera work, man. Yeah, and the editing, too, because the sequence is drawn out. I noticed that when camera gets almost directly over her chest, we cut back to the blind dead, and they're not chasing her so much as, like, they. you can get that they're kind of vaguely drifting in her direction. Her heartbeat is just loud enough to clue them in, but they're not, like, 100%. They're not locked in. Yeah, and you see that as she flees because she finds, and this is very cool, in the courtyard outside, they're scattered, and she sort of is able to dart between them because yeah. they're they're scattered, and she's not making any particular noise, and so she's able to sort of frogger it through. Eighties <laughs> reference. Is there a football term for what she does? <laughs> she jukes spatial them. awareness. Spatial awareness. Yes. Yes. She jukes them. She uses her spatial awareness. But she does turn her ankle for no apparent reason. Somehow, even though Virginia rode a horse all the way to the train and and got caught, she's able to, on one bad ankle, get to the train before the horseman can catch up to her. But yeah, then as we mentioned, she becomes paralyzed from the waist down for no apparent reason. So this is definitely something that you guys did not um, get the benefit of um, in your viewing. But uh, the Templars storm the train as it mm-hmm. stops to help betty board no it's it's in this cut well no there's there's a extremely powerful in my mind sequence that i don't think made it in yours oh where they're, they're going around chopping up people with the swords yeah uh well no you don't ever see that you don't even see that in the uh unrated version but what you do see is a child a small girl her mother is holding her in her arms and you still, it's still, you know, more implying it than explicit, but 
there's a lot of blood and the blood flows onto the child's face and you, you realize that they've killed the mother. The child is sort of whimpering and, you know, just still clinging to her mother's body. And then you, you get one of the following shot. You get one of the Templars leaning into the child and then it cuts. It, it's really, really horrible. You want to talk about getting struck by lightning. You're on a train on your way to work, on the way to a resort. You got your kid with you, and then the train stops out of nowhere. You're just like, ah, what is it? Is there a cow on the track? What's up? And then a bunch of zombies with swords get on the train and murder everybody. And that's how you die. It's like, what the right. fuck? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it feels like it's early morning. This film does a lot of uh, day for night shooting, which is really, really obvious. A little yeah. disconcerting, yeah. Yeah, but I tried to attribute that to, um, well, a lot of this stuff happens at the crack of dawn. I kind of got that feel, too. But they, they definitely were getting a lot of use of their neutral density filters. <laughs> yeah, so um, we get... Lone Fleming, uh, Betty, and apparently she suddenly has a wig. Uh, it looks like her hair has gone white or, or something. And then that contributes her to her being unrecognizable for our, you know, flash forward open. Yeah, the bookend. She, yeah, the bookend sequence as she screams. And there's this is the one thing that I don't think you guys saw, but to me is very Night of the Living Dead is there are some still frames at the end of the original cut. Oh. And yeah, like there's a still frame of the train and a, and they're very effective. They're very, very chilling because the soundtrack is still people screaming, but you have just still frames of, of the stopped train. And it's very suggestive of the of the massacre and the spread of this plague. Yeah, I mean, I walk out of this movie being unsettled. To me, this is a, a truly chilling and disturbing film, and I have to give it credit because the degree of care that they take to characters and setups and payoffs contributes to, to its impact. And even though there's some ludicrous and silly stuff, for the most part, I feel that this is a movie that you have to take seriously. Dan Sorio shot the fuck out of this movie, yes. man. I, I, it looks great. There's a ton of classic. I, I, I you know... I, I, I've I've been rolling around a theory that that great cinema is had from uh, an interesting setup, an interesting protagonist, and five or six just really kick-ass fucking scenes that you can't forget. And everything else is all, is almost connective tissue. I was rewatching Apocalypse Now. I hadn't watched Apocalypse Now in a really long time, and this is another movie that I used to watch all the fucking time and haven't watched in you know a decade or so. And I was really like, man, this is an interesting setup, interesting protagonist, interesting antagonist who we barely see until the very end of the movie. But it's really five or six really off the wall, fucking really well shot, really impactful scenes that you absolutely cannot forget that you talk about you're walking out of the theater. And I think that, you know, per that thought process, this movie definitely delivers on the exact same level. Well, there's that and then there's creating a new and identifiable monster that has a set of rules that are concrete and that lend themselves to sequels or whatever else. And 
the idea of the blind dead is just a great idea. You know, whether it was ever played out to its full potential or not, these guys are, it's not Freddy Krueger or Jason, but they, they stand distinct in the horror pantheon. And I think that's also a testament to the power of these films. That's the true soul of a franchise. Yeah. Just visually. Like if you, if you told me what are the top 50 most iconic or striking visual antagonists of horror films. There's no question these guys are are there. And they might even be in the top 25 if you really think it through. Because they're unique and they're chilling. There's not a datedness to that. And, And so even though this film and the sequels obviously have their issues, the blind dead are... I mean, we just saw this movie, um, you know about a guy that is blind and is tracking people in in a home invasion scenario. Oh yeah. Yeah, you know like this is a concept that is still being copied and played out today. Like there's something just really cool about that. Yeah, if you were to if you were to take that picture on the studios, it's like don't breathe with a zombie. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what? To me what sets this what really sets this apart is because I agree that there is something iconic about the blind dead and everything else. But what I really enjoyed was the ending and largely the fact that I feel like, and I think this is watching it from the perspective that I, that I brought to the film, but like I expect from watching say Texas chainsaw massacre, that when the girl gets to the truck, the truck's going to pull away and Leatherface is going to swing his chainsaw. He's going to miss and they're going to get away. And that's going to be the end of the movie or whatever. And so there's a sense in which, when the son stops the train for the first time, he stands up. All right, I'm going to stop the train. He's going to do the brave right thing for the first time. He's standing up to authority. He go. He, I'm going to go. I'm going to help her. He goes. He helps her. He's going to help her get onto the train. And you just sort of feel like in a Hollywood movie or in the Hollywood movies that have been made in the last 25 years that that bravery would be rewarded. And it isn't. It isn't rewarded. It's the the truck driver in Texas Chainsaw Massacre getting ripped out of the fucking truck and cut into pieces and eaten by the family. Like, even though she survives, it's more nihilistic than any ending I can think of in in, uh, almost any American film outside of The Mist. Absolutely. I mean, and I I do come back to... Anyway, let's not make any Lebowski jokes right now. But uh, it definitely evokes – this is a way that it evokes uh, Night of the Living Dead in the sense that – When Ben looks out that window and gets plugged by a redneck, that's such a huge fuck you to the audience's expectations. It's it's heartbreaking, but it also makes Night of the Living Dead that much more of a classic. Guys, do we have any last thoughts about Tunes of the Blind Dead? Vic? It's a good movie. I apologize if I if I came across as sort of shitting on it. The foreground relationship stuff works sporadically, but that that is merely the coat hanger on which the horror is hung. And to me, the horror is what matters, and that is what works. And so the relationships between Pedro and Maria and their relative interests characters, their the you know the those sorts of things. 
I, they work to a certain degree, but to me, they, they don't work to a larger degree, but it doesn't really matter because the knights on these fucking horses are just fucking scary. And that's, that's what you're doing. If you're making a horror film, your goal is to be unsettling. Uh, your goal is to be disturbing. Your goal is to find some way to get under my skin and to find something like this that was made on a low budget in Spain or Portugal in the 19, you know, in the early 1970s that still finds a way to get under my skin, both with the visuals and with this very dark ending is something to be heralded. Mike, uh, I'm going to bookend my original statement, which is the fact that I fucking love this movie. Uh, I fucking love it. And every time I watch it, I find new reasons to love it. And the things that I love about it, I love even more. I, I think it's shot extremely well i dig the characters i dig the setup i love the villains i love the nihilistic ending i love everything about this movie i i mean you know i i could have done without you know the rape scene i i that that felt like a early 70s european bridge too far that wasn't necessary and and kind of gives a a, a weird stench on this but at the same time you know horror movies are not a safe space and I, I don't think that the genre is meant to be that way. So uh, it, it's not my favorite aspect of the movie, but I have to accept it in kind of the same way that you kind of accept, uh, you know, that element and something like Last House and Left, you know. So it's a tough, grimy film that has a lot of nudity and gore and really amazing set pieces. Man, I just dig the fuck out of this film. Wow. Well, I agree completely with, the points that both of you guys made and couldn't put it better, but all I'll say is the visceral power of this movie and the the tension of it are truly timeless. I, I appreciate the character relationships and the amount of uh, attention paid to how that drives the story. And I think personally that for a European film, this movie is in the upper echelon of being character driven horror and, you know, really caring about the psychodynamics of, of the leads and how their relationships, you know, drive what happens without in any way sacrificing the visceral horror of, of what goes on. So, this is a weird and unique beast, this film, and while it's not without its flaws, I, I think that it stands out from European horror in a lot of ways. Hey, John, while we're doing this Darkest Hour podcast, this mm -hmm. series, this version of what we're up to, we should track down that old weird Spanish movie that we saw like 15 years ago with the, the heads and uh, that Hugo guy with the pink shirt and all that. You remember, you know what I'm talking about? I just goodwilled that. I don't have it anymore. What was it called? Do you remember? Oh, God. You got to track it down. Yeah, we're going to have to do a little detective work on that one. Yeah, or, or maybe I'll go back to Goodwill and buy it. Guys, <laughs> <laughs> before we get too far down this road, I just want to say on behalf of real Americans everywhere that, uh, John, if you're – Portuguese ass doesn't like the American version of this <laughs> You're going to find yourself on a boat, my friend. Because it's, it's great. It's That's right. Huge. We're going to start putting out American versions of all these movies. And, uh, yeah, no.
Yes. What I'm really gonna what I'm really gonna do is make this podcast really controversial because I feel like that's gonna be good for our listenership. Sure, we're, we're gonna be uh, uh, yeah. Well, let's introduce some clickbait. All right, gentlemen. all right, guys. I'm done. Good night to all. I hope you enjoyed our marathon podcast, and we'll be back soon with some other awesome film that um, we will dissect with loving care. Okay. Bye, guys. <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye, guys.